building from scratch was the only way that I was going to build what I truly believed was needed to thrive in the next generation. And I truly, at age 47, felt ready to be my own boss and bring together the team I believe needed to. So I would say that was the final inspiration. I am unwilling to give up that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out. Knocked out. Knocked so your out. only choice should be go focus on what you can control. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders. We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everybody. It's Kara Golden, and I'm so excited for our next guest. This is Julie Borenstein. She's the co-founder of The Yes. Very excited to have you here, Julie. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So Julie and I have known each other for a while now, met through our mutual friend and queen, Elaine Rubin of Queen of E-Commerce over the years. And a little bit of background on Julie, she spent her career basically at the intersection of fashion and technology. And she created the Yes after years of working with amazing, amazing brands. Most recently, she was Stitch Fix's chief operating officer and board member where she helped scale the company to over a billion in under six years. So crazy. I mean, amazing, amazing. And prior to that, Julie served as chief marketing officer and chief digital officer at Sephora, launching the Beauty Insider loyalty program and growing Sephora into a digital powerhouse. Julie also led the e-commerce for Urban Outfitters and prior to that for Nordstrom's. I mean, just a few amazing brands that we've all heard of. And I mean, she's just, in addition to being kind and such an amazing mentor and entrepreneur and just has done, you know, large companies, small companies, and really knows her stuff. So I'm very, very excited to have her here to talk a little bit more about her first outside of everyone else's businesses launch called the Yes. So again, welcome. And just tell us a little bit about you know, how this came up. Thanks, Kara. That was a really kind introduction. Yeah. I um, have been thinking about the yes since I was probably 10 years old. I grew up in Syracuse, New York. It was cold and snowy and boring. And I spent every weekend in the mall. And I was an avid shopper at a very young age, knew, you know, the ins and outs of the mall and felt like shopping was inefficient. I knew I wanted something specific. I was trying to find it. I, I enjoyed the journey too, but it was sort of always in the back of my mind. And then I got interested in other things and eventually came back around to e-commerce. What happened was I was, I remember where I was sitting the first time I saw amazon.com turn on and you could buy a book online. And I had worked in both retail and on the wholesale side of fashion. And my brain exploded with e-commerce ideas around what you could do with fashion. And so I ended up really spending, I did a couple of other things job-wise, but was really watching the growth of e-commerce. And I was had moved to Seattle for my boyfriend who became my husband. He and I had met at business school and he actually went to join Amazon in the early days, a couple months after um, they had launched. And 
So we were in Seattle and I was working for Starbucks and Nordstrom announced that they were going to launch e-commerce. And I had already been thinking about things and watching kind of the startup environment. And as soon as I heard Nordstrom was launching, I thought I've got to go find out about that. And so I spent about six months convincing them to hire me. And, you know, most of the people that worked there had been working for the company. They had taken their catalog division and made it an e-commerce spin out, gotten venture backing for it. And they were kind of like, who are you and why should we hire you? And so it took a lot of persistence. Finally, they did. And I was there for really the first five years of that business. And I had so many sort of core beliefs and instincts around what I wanted as a consumer myself. And a lot of help from having heard my husband sort of process verbally how Amazon was being organized. And so I jumped in and helped grow that business really from you know zero to we grew the business in the first five years to $350 million online. And we turned from losing money to becoming profitable. Crazy. And it was really fun. But you know, then sort of in my career, I went on to work for Urban, as you mentioned, and Sephora. And then um, I was introduced to Katrina Lake, the founder of Stitch Fix. And the ideas that I had always had were, we're collecting so much data, but we're not really using it effectively. And we're buying all this inventory and it's sitting in a warehouse and it's really limiting us to what we can potentially sell. And we're making guesses around what's going to sell and what's not. So the traditional retail model. And we were also building photo studios. Each of those companies I built a photo studio for so we could reshoot all the samples to actually put it up on the website. And there were just so many inefficiencies. And also technology was fairly limited. And so, you know, we had all these ideas of things we wanted to build and really we couldn't build them in the early days. And so all of this was sort of in the back of my mind and I had all these different experiences. And and eventually I would say the last piece that I gathered was really working with closely with the data science team at Stitch Fix. It was uh, that team was built by a guy named Eric Colson. And how often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning, too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. 
no English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. He is, you know, both brilliant and also brought a huge amount of experience from the tech world. He had been at Yahoo and then at Netflix and then helped them build their first algorithms. And so it was really fun to see how someone could merge kind of their experience in tech with data science and apply it to fashion. And so I got very involved in that part of the business and really passionate about it. But ultimately, I felt like there's a different business model out there, one where customers actually shop for themselves, but have the advantage of an algorithm that really helps them 
figure out what they want and surface the things that they're interested in in a much more efficient way. And so the idea for the yes came about because my feeling was there was a better e-commerce experience to be had. And now is the time to build it because you could both leverage all the photography and assets from the brands. You no longer needed to build a photo studio, get every sample. You no longer needed to buy all the inventory because technology had advanced such that you could truly build a unified shopping cart across multiple sites and that AI had sort of emerged to a place where you could apply it in a very practical way to a category that was quite nuanced and complex. And so I would say that that my lifelong experience and kind of the each of the places I had been, I learned new things, really led me to build the yes. I think I would say the last thing that was the inspiration was as I was leaving Stitch Fix and thinking about what I wanted to do next, I was being recruited by some of the big retailers who were looking for kind of next generation CEOs. And I spent some time thinking about that too, because my dream was always to run a big fashion retailer. And I realized that if I was going to run a company, I needed to truly believe that that company was set up to succeed. And as I did my research and I spent time thinking about a lot of paths to get there, I realized that building from scratch was the only way that I was going to build what I truly believed was needed to thrive in the next generation. And I truly, at age 47, felt ready to be my own boss and bring together the team I believe needed to. So I would say that was the final inspiration. That's awesome. Very cool. So you're a co-founder. Who's your other founder? My other founder is a guy named Amit Agarwal, who's technical. And as I started thinking about this business and talking to some VCs, you know, I knew that the most important partner to find was someone who actually had the experiences I didn't, which was the ability to technically build this idea. And as I was talking to a bunch of VCs, one of the sort of duo that was most helpful to me um, in my early days of thinking about this was... Jeremy Liu and Nikki Quinn at Lightspeed. And they had been involved in investing in Stitch Fix. And so they had sort of tracked my career and they had reached out and were really proactive and really great thought partners. And they said to me, you know, you are going to get a higher quality person as a co-founder rather than just trying to hire a CTO. And, you know, you should think about having a co-founder anyway, because it's really nice to have someone to build something with. Yeah, totally agree. Someone to be, you know, hold you accountable and really sort of have the level of investment in it. And I was sold. And so the key for me was finding the right person. And they introduced me to a few terrific people. And so did a couple of the other VCs. Bain, who um, Scott Friend, who I think you know, who's been an investor in, in many consumer companies, had always been someone I had admired and sat on a board with. And so he was one of the people I talked to early in my days. And he said, well, we have a guy who's a former CTO of one of our portfolio companies, Bloomreach, which I knew had done search and personalization. And his name is Ahmed Agarwal, and he's working on his own thing. But I said, well, you have to introduce me at least, you know, if nothing else, maybe you can connect me to someone, but he has such great relevant experience. So then Ahmed and I met and we kind of, you know, dated for a few months. So as I was working on the business plan, I was spending time with him, meeting some other people, but I really loved his experience. And he was so different for me, very quiet, very thoughtful, smart as can be, terrific reputation and a really deep kind of ML engineer. And so eventually we sort of you know, became sold on each other. And we closed the first round kind of just as he formally decided to come on. So he has been my partner since, you know, we started this business. 
That's awesome. And so you were supposed to launch, uh, you and I were talking briefly about this before we hopped on, but you were supposed to launch in March and obviously a crazy time in 2020 to be launching a company. So what did you decide to do? Well, we had worked on building the product for two years, which is pretty unusual. I mean, we weren't, you know, this was not a startup where we were going to like put something out there, see what worked and then rev on it. I had a really clear view of what this business needed to have at its core to be successful. And that required building a couple of pretty complex pieces of technology and also going out and meeting with hundreds of brands and convincing them to be a partner with us. And so we raised enough money to last us so we could really build the product for two years. So then March 26th was our big date, you know, that we had targeted and were planning for. And of course, March 12th, you know, the world changed dramatically for us here. And we decided, you know, we really need to step back and wait and see. We knew we wouldn't get the press coverage. We felt like it was tone deaf and we just had no idea what was about to happen. Fortunately, we had raised enough money that we could keep going. And the truth is you're never really ready. And so in my mind, because there were a few more things that felt really important to me to finish, we had the opportunity to do a few things more in the product. And we basically just said, let's watch and see what happens. You know, none of us knew at that point what was going to happen. And we, you know, we sort of like revisited every two weeks, where are things at and how do we feel about things? And we decided about mid-April, let's target late May. It just sort of feels like either this thing will have, you know, been somewhat resolved in our naive way, or we will at least have kind of gotten to a new understanding and reality of it. And, you know, if something changes, then we'll obviously change our plans, but we needed to launch. We needed to get users on the platform and actually get feedback. And so we decided May 20th, and we ended up getting very lucky because we had a few weeks before the George Floyd death and the incident that then created, you know, a whole second wave of just enormous activity in the country around things that felt really important and made our business feel a little trivial, I won't deny it. So we had sort of this two-week period where we got a lot of press and then, you know, then we went silent and respect for all that was happening, but we at least gotten the product out there and we started to get some users. And then, you know, it's been a crazy time to try and pitch a product that's not really needed right now. You know, people are not getting dressed and going out and going to work. But of course, there's also the benefit of people being at home, having the time, being open to trying new things. Totally. And so, you know, and us also really wanting to support our brands. I mean, this is a situation where a lot of these businesses have been deeply affected by COVID and all that's happening. And so for us, a lot of this is also how do we help support the brands to get through this period of time? I love what you said about launching and you knew just because you had worked in, with so many launches that nothing was going to be, you know, perfect, right? You were going to launch in order to get feedback, which I think is is so critical. And I always share this with entrepreneurs that, you know, obviously in the food industry that I'm in, you want to launch something that is safe, that isn't going to make anyone sick or obviously kill them. I mean, that would, that would be a, a great thing, but obviously you want to get it out there so that you get consumer feedback on, on stuff. What did you learn that you didn't know when you launched it? Yeah. Well, one of the things that's interesting is because I was an older founder mm -hmm. and I was known in my industry because I had, you know, been doing all these different things. I felt like that made it easier to raise money. I wasn't a young unknown, yeah. you know, person, but it also made me feel like the kind of weight 
of doing this right and getting it right out of the gate felt really high. Like I felt like we'd spent two years. That was unusual. We had, you know, written a couple of articles, like the, the stakes felt high and they felt higher than perhaps they did for, you know, just even when I hear Katrina's early day story before I even met her, you know, she was testing things out from her dorm room and it was such a different, and she raised $700,000 and I raised $11 million in my seed round. So it was a very different start. And so the stakes felt really high when I was launching and, you know, it was helpful. I was at a true ventures event. They're one of our investors. And you know, someone said there, if you wait until you feel like it's perfect, you've waited too long. And that was really helpful to me because even though I knew I couldn't wait, I just, I, because this was my first thing and this had like my name written all over it, I just felt like it should be perfect. Yep. And it's true. It still is not perfect um, and it will never will be. So I needed to get over that. I think the thing that I, you know, for two years, I sat with this idea. I would say the very beginning felt like, oh my God, can I actually pull this off? And then I had a team and that suddenly felt so much better because it wasn't just me alone. It was all of us were in this together. But I still felt when we were launching, like, will people get this? Will they like it? You know, will it like actually have legs? And so for me, the best part about launching was of course, not everybody loves it. And of course, you know, we didn't win everyone over right away, but we definitely won some people over and they thought it was really cool and it really made sense to them and it really resonated. And it was just so great to actually have users who understood what we were trying to do. Um, so I would say that was the most exciting thing about the launch is like actually getting confirmation that and it wasn't friends or family, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's who was in our beta. So I didn't really trust them, even though I love them. Yeah. So I'd say the confirmation. I think the thing, you know, that I realized, which I think is probably the case for every new business, is that some people didn't get it. And so, you know, the idea of, oh, we're going to say it this way, and then they're going to understand all the stuff that goes in behind it, because we need to keep it simple. You know, I think we realized that certainly people who came into the to the app because we built an app only without context didn't always get it. And so, you know, they didn't appreciate what was going into it or what it was supposed to do. And they felt like it was work. So we certainly, you know, there was, it was very clear right away that it worked for some people and it didn't work for others. And now we're in the phase, you know, we're, we just hit four months. So we're four months in and we're now trying to figure out, okay, is it that those are the wrong people or is it that we need to do a better job of helping those people come to understand the product and what's so great about it and make, you know, or evolve some things to make it work differently for them. And that's kind of, you know, we're in the stage where now we know there's product market fit with a segment and can we broaden that segment or how do we get more of that segment? Interesting. And so which retailers are on the platform? So we're not working with multi-branded retailers. We're only working directly with brands. So we have 175 brands on the platform from, we started kind of at the very high end talking to the luxury brands so that we could sort of secure them because it's much harder to go kind of upscale after you've you know, sort of centered your product in the middle. And our, our approach is we want to be high to low. We're modern fashion. It's how women shop. We're all about brands. So we want brands that all stand for something. You know, they're all brands that, you know, people can appreciate, understand, they mean something, but can really represent a whole range of things that you might buy. So we have Prada and Munio, we have Dolce Gabbana and Balenciaga. We have these great emerging designers who are also in the, I would say, more emerging luxury space. So Rosia Sulin and Adam Lippis and some brands that are, I would say, less well-known, but definitely in more of that contemporary space and are really cool, like um, the brand Kuehl, who I think you might know. Yep. Then we have, you know, we have 
brands that are frame and theory and sort of like great, broad, contemporary brands. And then we have DTC brands, like we have Everlane and Kriana and Laleen, um, who traditionally only sell through their own channels, but understand that as customer acquisition gets expensive, being part of some new platforms are interesting. And because we had relationships with them, they trusted us and they liked the idea and they were willing to bet on us, which has been amazing. And then we have specialty brands. We're the first place that Aritzia has ever sold outside of their own channels. We have Zara on the platform. We have Mango. So some cool European kind of everyday fashion brands. We have Levi's. So it's really broad and, you know, We'll probably end the year over 200. And we already actually have the largest assortment of apparel other than Farfetch on the platform today. So we have a bigger assortment than like a Nordstrom or a Shopop. And because we are carrying the entire collection from each of these brands. Um, so it's really nice. And we let, instead of a buyer kind of trying to guess what you're going to like, our algorithm really does that work. And how did you decide to go app only? We basically wanted to start in one place. We wanted to work, I think, two primary things. One is certainly mobile is the future. I mean, while people still are shopping on web and we're now working on building out web, we wanted to make sure that we were building for mobile and not building kind of, I think a lot of e-commerce today is kind of take the site and translate it to mobile as opposed to build for a mobile first environment. Um, and then the second is it just kind of had more constraints. And so we felt like let's, it's harder to really solidify and keep simple the product and it will force us to make decisions. So that's kind of why we decided at first. So obviously you're, you're in apparel right now, clearly with all of those brands that you mentioned is the plan to go kind of beyond apparel and into some other sectors. The fashion industry is enormous. And so, you know, it's hundreds of billions of dollars, hundreds of trillions of dollars globally. And so we're not in a rush to move off of it. And it's a part of what we've done and what makes us different is that we spent two years building the most extensive taxonomy that exists in fashion so that the algorithms and the recommendations are super nuanced and understand all of the factors that make things like Pinterest and Google and what they try and do with recommendations you know, but they don't really understand the difference between brands, the difference between quality, the difference between fit, those things that are so important when doing this in fashion. So we've really put a huge amount of energy into understanding this vertical, and we're going to stay focused on this vertical vertical for quite a while. So we will stay focused on women's for a good year. We'll probably then look at men's. We're only in the US right now. So we also have the ability to, we're not owning inventory. So the ability to go more global. And so we are not in a rush to move on to other verticals. I think our model is built such that as long as you really understand and you train models to be able to make recommendations around other categories, this certainly can work for other categories. But first, we got to nail this one. That's awesome. Very, very cool. When you were at Stitch Fix, you helped scale the company to over a billion dollars. What do you think is like the key to being able to do that for a brand? I think for us in particular, especially because at Stitch Fix, we weren't, we hadn't raised a lot of money. The company only raised in the mid forties ever. And so that's pretty low if you look at kind of the track record of other competitors. Very low. <laughs> and so, you know, I would say the early key was getting the unit economics to work. And the model was a really interesting one because we were sending a box of five items and the average keep rate, you know, it started at one and it would go to, you know, we were watching the improvement in how many items people would keep. And, you know, over time it grew above two and it's probably closer to, you know, somewhere between two and three now. And so that model 
actually works quite well. So you get someone a box. The sh- if you think about all the expense with shipping um, and returns, the whole system was built around assuming some return level. So we're really efficient at taking returns in. And if the average person kept two or more items, then every sale was profitable. And so getting those unit economics to work early on was one of the cornerstones. And this part of the reason that the unit economics work was because of actually, you know, how many people would keep items. But the second was also that we were able to grow to almost $400 million through primarily referral and influencers. And so, you know, Amazing. we did not have to spend a lot of money on marketing in the early days, in part because the world was different back then. When we started to grow the business in the early days, I came in and as a board member in 2012, the business was started in 2011, we were really getting primarily referrals through bloggers. And so bloggers were different than, you know, and Instagram is so much, there's so many more people and each person has such a light touch. But with bloggers, there were fewer of them and they had bigger influence over their reach. They were writing lots of things. They were posting every day, people were reading them. And so, you know, we were seeing these influential bloggers bring on hundreds of users. And then there was a great referral piece brought it sort of built into the product. And so there was this exponential, you know, sharing aspect. And so there was a lot of viral growth in the early days, which it was also a very new concept, Stitch Fix at the time. And so people thought they were excited to share the product with their friends who may not have discovered it. Um, Obviously, you know, the world changed and the newness of Stitch Fix changed. And, you know, we started to spend money and then learn how to scale effectively paid marketing. But really in those early days, we were able to get to sort of product market fit in a fairly low cost way, which allowed us to really figure out all the ways that we sort of the things we needed to do to help continue to grow and scale the business. So interesting. And I love what you're doing at the yes, but you've just seen so many really, really incredible companies go from, you know, almost nothing to, you know, being huge. I'm so excited for you. And I can't wait to watch this really take off. It's very, very exciting. So, well, I always ask one last question. What makes you unstoppable? Um, I love that question. I would say that if I really want something and I really believe in it, I just don't take no for an answer. (laughs) And I think that's true, actually. So I I'm love it. At, I, I'm a middle child and I feel like middle children learn how to, they're good at observing what's happening around them and they're good at figuring out how to create win-win situations for everybody. And so, you know, you need to understand what motivates the other person and what's going to convince them. But, you know, I would say since I was a young girl, I was pretty good at figuring out, you know, how to get what I wanted in a way that made everyone feel good and helped other people get what they wanted to. And I would take, I've taken that both persistence and approach uh, pretty much to everything I've ever done. I was the last of five kids and I took the exact same approach. We're kindred spirits. So, and, and for different, different reasons, mine was not having a brother or siblings on either end. My, mine was my parents and negotiating with them. And, and <laughs> so that's awesome. Well, so where do people find, first of all, the yes is at the yes.com. And obviously it's an app. So, I mean, that's the website, but... You can download the app on the... um, from. It's where iOS only right now. So you can download the app on your iPhone at the Yes. And the website just directs you to the app store. Directs you over there. Got it. And then where do people find Julie Bornstein? On social and... 
mostly on LinkedIn. Everything's under my name, Julie Bornstein. And I spend a little time on Instagram, mostly because it's such a relevant marketing platform today, but mostly via LinkedIn. That's awesome. Well, everybody, like Julie's been such a, you know, instrumental person and just this industry as a whole from the beginning. And so definitely have a look and follow Julie and go download the Yes app. And it's very, very exciting. So thank you so much, Julie. It was great having you and seeing you. And everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give high reviews and go subscribe and do all that stuff. And we're every Monday and Wednesday, we bring super exciting people that have great stories and are out there doing cool stuff. So we're very, very excited to be able to bring Julie to you today. So have a great week. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.